Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The European Union sounds the alarm for this winter, urging countries to ration their gas by 15%. Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. We will discuss what this means for you this winter. Also tonight, either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss will be the next leader of the UK. Boris Johnson had some advice for them today. Focus on the road ahead. Focus on the road ahead. But always remember to check the rear view mirror. Civil Liberties Group criticises the government after legislation was rushed through ahead of the summer recess. Join the conversation on Twitter with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. months now we've known that energy is being used as a weapon of war. Now we're seeing the consequences. The European Union is urging all countries to cut their gas supply by 15% until next March. They say it's to defeat Russian blackmail over its gas supplies to the continent. We have to be proactive. We have to prepare for a potential full disruption of Russian gas. And this is a likely scenario. Ireland uses less gas than some other countries, but Russia turning off the taps would still have a significant knock-on effect. The Taoiseach, speaking earlier during a trip to Japan, had this to say. Our supply lines are somewhat different in terms of Norway to the UK and to Ireland in terms of gas. We do see issues with energy in terms of pricing, certainly, as we move into the autumn. Well, let's get more on this issue. I'm joined by Daniel Murray, political correspondent for The Business Post, Senator Pauline O'Reilly from the Green Party, People Before Profit TD, Breed Smith, and Ushin Coughlin, Director of Friends of the Earth. I'm also joined on Skype tonight by Moiran Lynch, Energy Economist and Senior Research Officer at the ESRI. Um, you're all very welcome along to the programme. To come to you first, Moiran, um, can you explain what this proposal is around the reduction of gas usage? And in many ways, is this just the run-up to, to rationing? Is essentially they're saying it's a voluntary move, but you're going to have to really try and cut those supplies. Yeah, I suppose what we're looking at here is just trying to prepare for the eventuality that Russian gas supplies will be reduced even further or possibly cut off altogether. And what we're really trying to do is build up our energy storage and in particular our gas storage in in advance of the winter. And reducing gas usage right now can actually help because that means that any molecule of gas that we don't use right now, we can store for the winter. And there are a number of reasons we want to do that. 
first, obviously, is so that in the event that there is a supply reduction or uh, supply cut off altogether, we have something stored to use. However, it also means that if we have more in storage, then Russia has actually less of an incentive to use gas supply as a tool against the European Union, because the more we have in storage, the less disruptive a gas supply cutoff would be. Now, at the moment, it's essentially a recommendation or a request that member states, including Ireland, would reduce their gas usage by 15%. Uh, we have not yet seen that being put into legislation at EU level, at national level. That could come down the line, though. So right now, we're merely being asked to do everything we can to reduce our usage, but we may actually be compelled to do so in the future. So, Mern, who will be impacted by all of this should it go through? Are we talking about industry rather than households? Certainly, it would seem that we want to prioritise households and also public services such as hospitals, schools, those kind of things ahead of industry. Um, however, there is also the fact that the biggest gas user really is the electricity sector. And the last thing you want to do is cut off gas supplies to the electricity sector because that would have a knock-on implication for electricity supply. So we need to be clever about how we do this. There are a couple of things you can do. First of all, the route we might go down first is trying to incentivize large gas users to reduce their usage by themselves. So we already do this in the electricity sector, where if you actually curtail your electricity usage, you get paid for that. So that might be the first step, trying to incentivize companies to turn down their gas usage in response for uh, payment. However, down the line, it may be the fact that we're actually going to have to ask them or compel them to reduce their usage, possibly by limiting the amount of manufacturing they do, that by limiting the amount of plant usage that they have, that's obviously going to have an impact on their output. Um, and some of these high energy using industries are actually quite profitable. So if we're impacting on their output, then that's going to have a further implication for tax take and all the rest of it. However, I don't envisage um, everybody across the board would be asked to reduce their usage by the same amount. We certainly would want to prioritise households, but that's difficult to do on a technical level because you can't exactly go turning off this gas pipeline and not that gas popping. Yeah, uh, interesting to see how it will play out and indeed how the policy will be implemented. Um, Daniel, when you hear that, it's, it's, it's complex, isn't it, for governments to get a handle on this? I mean, do, do you think there's much preparation for this call on industry, uh, certainly, to cut their gas use and for this storage now to begin looking, looking ahead to the winter? Yes, yeah, certainly industry have already been putting in place their own plans uh, with the pretense that they would be looking at gas rationing this winter. So that's happening in the private sector already. In Ireland, industry is really kind of pharma sector, food and drink sector. There's some cement as well. So speaking to some people in that industry, they are looking at plans. The government then have, have to look at a couple of things. There is this direction from the EU today to kind of engage in this voluntary reduction of 15% over, over the winter months. And speaking to a European Commission source about this the other day, they were explaining, explaining it to me that we're better off to manage this in a voluntary capacity over a longer period of time into the winter than be caught on the hop in an emergency situation in the, in the middle of winter, which is the risk that we, we now face with Russia possibly cutting off gas supplies. So the government are going to have to prepare for that voluntary reduction and then the possibility that there could be a sudden cutoff as well. Yeah, the question is, is that going to come easily or will it be a sort of carrot and stick approach that if you look, if you, if you cut back on your use, 
we'll pay you. We'll pay you for that. Yeah, they, they could put in place schemes, as Moiran was saying there, to incentivize, incentivize industry to reduce demand. But one of the big problems that, that we're facing here in Ireland is that this winter we're actually expecting gas use to increase year on year based on last winter. You might remember there were stories about us having to import emergency gas generators just to meet uh, increased demand that wasn't there last year. So that's part of the problem as well this winter is that we actually have to facilitate that demand. Question is, is are, are we going to be able to facil facilitate all that demand? Should we even be using these emergency generators if we're meant to be reducing our gas use anyway? Uh, yeah, I, Pauline, you know, on all of this, I mean, how prepared are government? We know that energy prices are already at a historic high. Um, all of this means the prices are set to get even higher. Well, I mean, Ireland is in a fairly unique position because we don't use Russian gas. You know, all of our gas is either Irish, but predominantly it's British gas. But, but it obviously uh, but it is going to a, have a Europe-wide knock-on well, effect. A, it has a knock-on effect on the cost because obviously 40% uh, of Europe is using Russian gas. So when their supplies go down, then it has a knock-on impact on the cost it already has. And that's what we've said about the war. Um, and wars do have that. And I think that it highlights the issue of not having an indigenous um, renewable energy sector. And that's why we have been really trying to pursue as fast as we can renewables. But this is a short term thing, which um, means that we have had to have uh, gas generation back up. Um, and I think that we're, you know, we, we have to be what's responsible the, sorry, What's a short term thing? Well, it's, it's what's short term is that we are as reliant as we are on gas because we've come into government, I suppose, and 50% of our electricity comes from gas. Yeah, well, and it's been like that, that right up until well, now. So well, it, well, exa it, it well, exactly. Short term, but, right now. Well, ex except that you can't just roll out overnight offshore renewables, but they're already happening. But now. We're, we are lagging. We, you you we would have, agree that we're we're lagging. Absolutely, it's why we went into government to, to change this. But we even see solar farm opening in uh, in Wicklow, that serves three and a half thousand homes. You know. This needs to ramp up fast. Mm. But what my point is, it's not going to obviously ramp up for, for, for this winter. So I think we do have to look at, at all the measures that we can. Yeah. Uh, Breed, on this, like, what do you think of the European decision and is there any alternative to it? Well, I think that, first of all, it indicates that sanctions aren't working on Russia. They're not, it's not stopping the war and it's not stopping the brutality of Putin in Ukraine. Um, we've always argued that they were a bad idea in the first place. But if you look at what's happening with the purchase of oil from Russia to Saudi and then Biden visiting Saudi to get oil from them, it's almost like Saudi is laundering Russian oil. And that sanctions are causing this sort of chaotic system of energy uh, distribution and delivery. That's a political point about uh, sanctions themselves. But I also think that this will mean people will be frightened because they're going to see an electricity uh, increase of 10% in August and nearly 30% in gas from Electric Ireland. That's already been announced. The 1st of August, that's to come in. And that'll put a huge chunk onto people's monthly bills. We are arguing for price controls of energy. Mm. And we have, we're producing a bill that we'll be publishing next week to push for price controls of energy, which has been done in France, in Spain, in Portugal, in Poland. It is absolutely possible for the Irish government to do it so that the householders no longer hurting. It'll lead into our other discussion about the cost of living, but these things are linked. And I just think that it's about time that this government took decisions about controlling the price of energy. 
I welcome any reduction in the usage of gas, but for ordinary householders, that means we have to have a ramped up, massive retrofitting programme, yeah. which we don't have at the moment. All right, and we, we will get back to that issue about price controls on energy breed. But to come to you first, Oshin, um, also interesting to note that the International Energy Agency has come out ringing the alarm bells as well saying gas use in generating power needs to be reduced and that coal and oil uh, fire generation needs to be temporarily increased. Now, that would seem to fly in the face of all the climate action measures that um, we hear are, are so badly needed. But is this the reality that this right now is a necessary evil? Well, I think... There may be some very emergency measures needed. We're already using Money Point more than we would expect it to here in Ireland, using coal more than we expect it to. But like this is a, this is a positive move from the EU today, but it's limited. It needs to go further in various ways. As in, it's the right focus. We need to be reducing demand as opposed to scrambling for new supplies of fossil fuels. So reducing demand is the right idea. But that's, I mean, that, that's all very well. You, you don't think it goes far enough, the 15%? No, it's not so much uh, the 15% part. It, it, it's, it's, it's what they're doing beyond that in the sense that it's good they're saying, for example, that the protected class should be domestic customers, that that's the priority along with hospitals and public services. But in their wider statement today, they don't really look at, at, at the sort of issues we touched on here of, of energy poverty. They treat all households the same, whereas in fact, we should be prioritising those houses, those households most at risk of energy poverty, not, not treating all households the same. Not, not so much for supply of gas, but the general, the, 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 the pressure to, uh, for the solutions, for the reduction of demand. Reid mentioned uh, retrofitting. We, we still have time, just about, to not be waiting for people to come and apply for these schemes, but for the SAI to be sitting down with the Vincent de Paul, with MABS, with, with Age Action, and going out to the customers who are most at risk and, and giving them the short, the, the small-scale re retrofitting uh, measures that can actually reduce the demand no, next well, we winter. we know the delays and, and how long it is taking for those retrofits But it's to easier happen. to do small ones than the deep retrofits. Okay. And we also need, to, for example, to, to ban disconnections throughout the winter uh, and, and we need to uh, uh, also force all utilities to put everybody on the lowest available tariff so that we are reducing the consequences of this really... Uh, big spike in prices that people are facing. Um, Moran, talking about the solutions and how you help people who are really impacted by this, um, Breed mentioned there about, you know, putting energy price caps in place and then, you know, preventing people from being cut off and all those sort of measures to ensure people are not worried um, about the winter ahead. As an energy economist, what, what do you make of those uh, potential solutions? Uh, I mean, to be honest... A lot of the challenge would be more on the legal side than the economic side. Uh, price caps are something that could be explored. Uh, there are difficulties to that as well in terms of how do you make up the shortfall. It is the case that all of these energy companies are facing higher costs in terms of acquiring the fuel that they either sell directly onto the customers in the case of gas or the fuel to generate electricity. Um, and if we're putting a price cap on what they can charge, then there's going to be a shortfall there. And the question is, how do we make up that shortfall? Is that the best use of public funds to go challenge channeling money toward energy companies? Maybe it would be better to use public funds to target, as we said, lower income households, more vulnerable households through the taxation and welfare system. We simply cannot insulate everybody from the effects of war. We have to make some choices here. And if but the choice we want to make is to target vulnerable households, then the best way to do that is through the tax and welfare system rather than doing something like a price cap 
or an energy credit or indeed cutting excise duty. The argument is for price caps with taxes on the profits of the energy companies, which have been vast over the last two years, vast profits from all energy companies, including the big fossil fuel companies, and their profits should be used to... Pauline, do you want to respond to that? Can I just say, you know, not getting into the discussion uh, around price caps, but I mean, certainly what we've done and what the Green Party have called for and through various ministers, including Minister Joe O'Brien, has been really out strong on this, is poverty uh, reduction measures is what we need, targeted measures. That's why there's 2.7 billion already this year gone into measures to support people through this cost of living. Um, issue and they have to be and there, although there's 200 in everybody's electricity bill that was you know a, a quick way to get to get some of that funding but I don't believe that it's the best use of money overall. We're likely, we're likely we need, to see it again though in the autumn aren't well, we? Well, well, well yes so because the Green every, Party opposed to that every, Well everybody needs something but You should actually, be opposed mo- to another question are you, It's a waste are of you money. Are you opposed well, to mo- that because most, I think that is that is what we're, 400 million euro it's a waste of money What we're what we have already done is to increase, it's over 200 euro um, fuel allowance increase. Those are the things that we are pushing for and they are much, much more than right. the tax well, credit. I'm sorry, Way I have more, to correct you, Paul. More than the, I, that's I, what's going through on PQs, have found out that up to February of this year, and I've asked a further one for the figures from February to the present, 20,000 people were denied fuel allowance and these are people living in energy poverty. Plus, I have repeatedly Mm. had people, an 81-year-old widow coming to me who lost her fuel allowance because her her, um, deceased husband's pension went up by €8. So she gains eight and loses 33 and the, I constantly go on to the Minister about this. The Green Party are not fighting the, this the, issue the, on the behalf point, of poor the, people. The point about it is that it is those measures, it's targeted measures. And yes, everybody has to get it right. And yes, Pascal Donoghue and has to get that bit right and, and get it to the right people. But, but that actually targeted measures are, not what, happening. We, are what we Daniel, need to do. I just want to ask you on the greater issue around industry and energy use. Does this put the spotlight again on the likes of data centres and the amount of energy that they are consuming when we are in this squeeze right now, we are in this global energy crisis and the number of data centres here um, per capita um, really exceeds that of many other countries. Yeah, I think if we get to a stage where it's not a kind of a voluntary reduction uh, by by industry, but we're looking at actual rationing and having to kind of put that that in place through through legislation, uh, I think that data centres would be one of the first in line to be kind of targeted for that. The reason for that is, is a couple of reasons. One, that is where most of the power sector demand growth has come from in the last number of years. It's where most of the power sector demand growth is due to come from in the next six months to a year, which is obviously the key period that we're, we're talking about here in terms of energy demand growth so and they are also not priority customers so there would be certain industries that would be considered critical to the functioning of society they might be pharmaceuticals there'd be certain uh, industries that produce products that are key to cross-border supply chains data centers might not be considered that i mean we cannot be telling householders of any class to be reducing their energy use and putting on jumpers and turning down the thermostats while giving more gas to to data centers in the coming ones are or, or for example, if there's any plan, Breed had a PQ recently that showed there's eight more uh, data centres in the pipeline for connection. If any of those are being due to connect in the next six months or a year, it can't happen. It would be a moral outrage to connect a new data centre 
while telling all of us to reduce our energy use. Well, the Green Party don't want to do anything about data centres, do they? There's been no Greek connections for data centres for two years since we've been... Stop speaking over me now, because I want to It's really important, and it is a really important point that I don't agree with more and more, but what I do think is guidelines have been put in place so that data centres have to bring something, and that includes... And that includes some of the energy. Some of these have been in the pipeline before those guidelines were brought in, before government... When we're looking any of those in the next year. Sure. That just can't happen. When we're looking now at, the, at this global crisis, when we're looking at decisions being made by Europe and the International Energy Agency pointing out the crisis really that we're in right now, is it really sustainable and, and tenable that data centres should have such, I suppose, a, a large hold, hold on energy use in this country? I, I don't believe that, that it is tenable and that's why we needed to put in place guidelines and not give any grid connections until there were guidelines to say, actually, if you are, if you are looking for a grid connection, then what are you bringing to the table and what energy are you giving Sorry, back? Pauline, and that don't is... mislead people. Those guidelines do not apply mm. to the eight who've already got agreements because they were signed in legal agreements be... with the state for to be connected to AirGrid within the next three years. Because Eight they were already in the pipeline yeah, for a yes, long time. But now we're exactly. in an energy emergency exactly. as well as a climate but emergency. Can you guarantee that no new data centre will be connected between now and next summer? Well, I, I, I don't ho hold the pen when it comes to that. And there are legal considerations if people have already signed a contract before uh, we came into government in okay. particular. We're not getting an answer on, on that one tonight. We're going, going to have to take legal consideration. We're going to have to take a quick break now. Uh, my thanks to Moira Lynch, who joined us uh, via Skype tonight. Up next, a special report on the issue of fuel and how it's hitting rural Ireland during the cost of living crisis. Stay with us. Welcome back. We heard about gas and renewables before the break, but for many, fuel poverty is already a serious issue with prices at the pump skyrocketing and rural Ireland is feeling the pinch more than others, as Kira Doherty found out. It's a busy morning at V Keating's Oil, a family-owned oil distribution business in Artsala, County Meath. And although it's the height of summer and many of us have the central heating off, there are still customers calling to get their home heating oil tank filled. Concern about prices and supply means some are booking now before the onslaught of oil orders in the winter months. It's a concern managing director Martin Crinian shares. I am worried with if the cost continues to keep even as it is or continues to rise. It is, you have to wonder at what point does it become unaffordable for people and like what percentage of people does it become unaffordable for. You never want to see people struggling and you don't want to see people who are making choices about what bills they can afford to pay or not pay. It's, it's just, it's heartbreaking to be honest. Two thirds of homeowners rely on oil to heat their homes, the majority in rural Ireland. Since last year, the cost of filling an average tank has risen from around 700 euro to over 1500 euro and cuts in VAT on gas and electricity don't apply. Those who can't afford to fill their tank or are struggling to make ends meet are buying small drums of oil and budgeting their heating on a week-to-week -week basis. It definitely has increased that people um, are using 20 litres drums. Um, they're coming up here filling kerosene uh, because they can't afford to fill up their tanks or can't, can't even afford to put in the minimum into their tanks. They might only be able to afford a week heating oil at a time and it might be 40 litres to be getting 
it, it's hard like to to know exactly, but definitely it has increased the uh, kerosene sales in the yard with people with drums. It's gone up around 40% on this time last year. On the forecourt, cars arrive for diesel, but Thomas say few fill up. In this part of rural Ireland, alternative forms of transport aren't an option. If you did want to leave your car, I mean, could you walk? Could you cycle? Is there public transport? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Sports. There's no public transport here. The closest bus would be two miles away. Um, walking or is an option but you can see our roads are fairly busy around here cycling again is the same there's no cycle paths there's no footpaths around here like you're two or three miles away from the closest area where it's safe to walk or cycle and the closest bus as well it would be around that sort of distance so people got to use their cars exactly yeah people have to use their cars Finding alternatives to offset rising energy costs is something farmer Thomas O'Connor would like to consider down the line. <laughs> Renewable microgeneration, we call it, for farmers. That's something, I think that's, there's, there's definitely something in that for the future. We have all the sheds, we have the space to put them on. So in France and Germany, um, the majority of the farmer's income actually comes from microgeneration, so from the solar panels on their shed or any anaerobic digesters. And that's something that hasn't, that alternative source of income hasn't really been there for farmers in this country and it's something we're going to have to look into. 2022 has been a good year for Thomas with strong prices for beef, but input costs are rising and rising fast. It's pretty much the three Fs we call it, so your, your fuel, your fertiliser and your feed. So facing into silage season in 2021, um, green diesel was somewhere around 58 to 60 cent. To be honest with you, at the moment it's fluctuating somewhere between a euro and six to 128, and at times it hit 140 plus. So you're over 200 percent. Um, the relative value of fertilizer. So last year, the per ton of grass I put in my silage 
or into buying silage pit. Last year was costing me about 35 euro a ton. This year it's going to cost me 50. And there's, it's all, these are all measures out of our control. And unfortunately, the only thing we can do was hope that uh, we get rewarded in when we sell our, our, pro, our products, whatever, whatever it is. But that's going to have to pass on back through the supply, the, through the food chain, back to the primary um, consumers. Consumers have experienced a surge in food prices, exacerbated by supply chain issues and these higher costs. Increases, Thomas says, are here to stay. Kira Doherty with that report. Well, Daniel Murray, Pauline O'Reilly, Breed Smith and Oshin Coughlin are still with me. Um, what struck me on that is really when we're looking specifically around the issue of people heating their homes, that two thirds of the country are reliant on oil to heat their homes, despite all this talk about how bad it is for the environment and also how costly it is. The cost has more than doubled, I think, in the past um, year. And those people and many other people around the country will say, well, why isn't the government doing something about this? Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I represent Galway and it's half rural, half urban. Um, and, I mean, people come to me all at the time with the same issues that are coming up on the VT. Um, and particularly when you're looking at people who don't have another option other than to drive in a lot of rural Ireland, these are real issues and they are hurting people. And uh, and, I, and that's why I think that on top of the target measures that I've spoken about previously, I do think that, that it's the right thing to do to actually um, give everybody money back to an extent on their electricity bills because it does impact people even if they're not on the lowest income because some people are more reliant than others. So it has to be both. Both have to go hand in hand. And we wouldn't be the biggest advocates when it comes to um, you know, reducing excise, for instance. But it, ha it also has to be part of the solution. But fundamentally, um, the, the eight billion that we're putting into retrofitting, uh, that is a key part of this. Uh, it's not overnight. It can't be overnight. It's I not think most, overnight. Pe most yes. people are realistic. I, I think enough. people recognise that it's not a short term solution. So, short term solutions may be something like cutting, cutting VAT on fuel or increased measures, other measures that could happen. You know, and and, and some and of those things, and some from. of those things have been done, but it also has to be done in a measured way because we cannot insulate everybody from the price increases because they are global. But what is causing this is partly the mm. war, but it's also partly the fact that we are in a climate emergency and we have to try and move as quickly as we can. All of this is demonstrating that right. into a more sustainable uh, form of energy. Uh, Breed, what would you advocate in terms of measures to help people, like we saw in that report, to pe help people in rural areas impacted by um, the cost of living crisis to a greater extent than many other people? Well, I think there's people all over the country in rural areas and in city areas that need help. And I've argued already for price controls on energy, and I think that mm. needs to be done. And like I say, we're producing the bill next week. But that also has to be combined with recognising that there are vast profits being made out there by the sectors where the prices are rising highest and fastest. That's within the fossil fuel industry, within the food industry, and uh, also production of things like cars and all. The profits are absolutely huge. And we're not taking enough back from the wealthy in order to help those who are, are, are worse off. And when I say wealthy, I mean the super rich and the global corporations. We are just not taking enough back to help this be a better society. 
But I also think on the question of transport, it is scandalous that rural towns don't have public transport. Well, we've had an and it's scandalous today, that they don't have uh, cycle lanes. Yeah. And we need to move on that very, very quickly. And we advocate free, frequent public transport everywhere. And it has shown, and we've had people in giving us evidence in the Oireachtas, it has been shown to take cars off the it road when you provide uh, free, actually. frequent public transport. Um, Oisín, uh, to, to, to ask you, I mean, it's a difficult time, isn't it, for the green agenda in many ways in rural areas when we're in this cost of living crisis and there's a sense that whatever has to be done is going to cost people more money. And also, they have oil to heat their homes. There are no alternatives right now that are going to save them money. No, I, I, don't, I, I agree with, with the second part of what you said there. It's a very challenging time for, for as Breed said, for everybody, but particularly if you're, if you're dependent on, on, on oil for, for home heating and you have no alternative in the short term, absolutely, the government needs to look at, at what help it can give uh, the most vulnerable in, in the first instance and then those who have no alternatives after that. Uh, but it was interesting to see the farmer in, your, in, in the VT there also talk about the opportunities that, that exist and the fact that they haven't yet taken off on Ireland. That's around solar for farm, on farms and anaerobic digestion. As it happens, I was at the Energy and Agriculture uh, show in Gertine College yesterday in Tipperary, where there's huge interest among the farming community in putting solar panels on their roofs. So what's holding it all back, O'Shane? Well, uh, hopefully soon, not so much. But until now, it's been bureaucracy and planning, uh, planning restrictions and lack of schemes to support the uptake of it. And look, uh, I, had a, I had a bill that passed in the Shannon mm. last year on this. And, and, uh, and, and to be honest with you, one of the, one of the Fine Gael ministers has been dragging his feet on it. But I think that it could really, really support people in the agriculture sector because they do have shares. I mean, we're, they we, we are, I so, talked so about it lagging behind before, but yeah. we, hear, we hear about it on the continent where you know, farming communities to a huge extent use solar panels and use all these things and, 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 and sustainability is a key part of, of their future. But the message doesn't seem to be getting through and there's certainly a communication uh, disconnect no, there. Think, we think, see this no, now from even I the, th no, I the think sexual that, talks that are taking place at the moment. No, on the I think that, that farmers, farmers really want this, you know. Farmers Absolutely. that I speak to really but, want to, but, but um, you know, the minister needs to, needs to now, now deliver on that. But, uh, you know, when, it looks at, when we look at solar panels on mm. roofs, when we look at microgeneration, there are over 30,000 people now who are giving back their energy to the grid, mm. some of their energy. So, so we have a lot... Uh, and finally, they were, they've yeah. been giving it back for a while. They're finally getting paid now. now. Getting just paid. want to quickly get, get to Daniel. Um, uh, is the government missing a trick on, on we're hearing so much about the cost of living squeeze on people in rural communities? It doesn't seem like they're connecting with those people who are really feeling the pinch right now. Yeah, quite possibly they are. And it's, it was very well put in that VT, the exposure of people in rural Ireland to the cost of living crisis. They also haven't benefited from some of the measures like reductions in, in public transport. It's not that they, that they don't have access to it, but just that the public transport isn't necessarily frequent in their areas. So they do need more support. The government, of course, are going to provide more supports in the coming budget, which is going to be uh, announced in, in September. And it's going to th do that through kind of permanent spending package. But importantly, it's also going to have a one-off measures package, probably in the region of 800 million to a billion. And that's going to be really interesting to watch. There could be bonuses through fuel allowances through that. And that could help target people, especially in rural Ireland. And more free school buses. They're reducing the price. But we need to make free bu no, school no, buses available free. for more, but more are, places. But more pe people, yeah, absolutely. But we'll be free for they, everyone. That they're short-term measures. Yeah, that can be done yeah, right. We'll leave it there. My thanks to Oisín Coughlin. The rest of the panel will be staying on with me as Britain's Conservative Party finally whittles down its leadership candidates to two. We'll be live to London next.
It's only two weeks since Boris Johnson quit as UK Prime Minister, plunging the country into yet another political crisis. Now the contest for his successor is down to the final two. It will either be former Chancellor Rishi Sunak or Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. They came through the latest round of voting and will spend August trying to convince the Conservative Party to give them the top job. Well, let's go live to London now and Ollie Bar Barrett is there for us. Thanks for joining us tonight, Ollie. Um, Rishi Sunak was a shoe-in, uh, but for his competitor in this runoff, it was between Liz Trust, really, and uh, Penny Mordaunt. What did it come down to that the, the, the Tory votes went to Liz Trust on this? Well, in the end, it was because the final round of voting saw more MPs moving to Liz Truss's side uh, than to Penny Mordaunt's after Kemi Badenoch had been the last candidate to be eliminated from the competition, from the candidacy. And earlier in the race, the right of the party had really been split with several candidates that MP support was divided around. But by the end, it appears that more of Kemi Badenoch's supporters went to Liz Truss in that final round of voting than they did to Penny Mordaunt. Liz Truss picked up a lot more votes from the penultimate round to the final round than Penny Mordaunt did. She had a bit more momentum coming into that final round uh, as well. And it looks like the right of the party have really decided that Liz Truss is their candidate, the one that they want to go up against Rishi Sunak. One of them will be the next prime minister. Uh, so no holidays for this pair. How are they going to spend August and how dirty could this campaign get? Well, we've seen in the televised debates that Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak seem to have very little love lost between them. They seem to be content to attack each other's records in government, although Conservatives as a grouping will hope that actually the race doesn't get too nasty and damage the brand in the coming weeks. But there will be 12 hustings events between uh, now and uh, the end of August. There will be uh, televised debates, there will be interviews in which they can make their case to the party membership as well. And it is the party membership that now decides those postal ballots will be going out very soon. And then the Conservative Party members up and down the country, 150,000 or so of them, will place their votes. And we will uh, have the end of that ballot by September the 2nd. The 1922 committee is still saying that on September the 5th, they will make the announcement as to who's won. And that person will then become prime minister, we expect on September the 6th. Now we had Boris Johnson uh, final Prime Minister's questions in Westminster today. Uh, he bowed out in his usual style. He seemed to be enjoying himself. Hasta la vista, baby, were his final words in a PMQs in the House of Commons. And then he got a standing ovation from his side of the aisle, at least. Almost all Conservative MPs were on their feet applauding him out. Theresa May, his predecessor, was notably slow to get to her feet compared to some of her colleagues, and she didn't give him a round of applause at all. But it was interesting to see all of those Conservative MPs applauding Boris Johnson out, even though just days earlier, Earlier, dozens of them had been manoeuvring to get him out of his job. OK, Ollie Barrett in London, thanks for joining us uh, for the very latest from there. Um, now we're back with our panel again. And Daniel, just to get um, a take from you on this, um, is it true that the Irish government would have been happy with anyone <sighs> other than Liz Truss um, to be potentially...
the next British Prime Minister. Yeah, I think that's exactly the case. Uh, the government here are getting very nervous now because if you had asked them at the outset of this race when there was multiple candidates in the field, if there was one candidate they didn't want to get it, trust was the name that was being mentioned again and again. Primarily that's because, you know, what we have in terms of our skin in the game is the Northern Ireland Protocol and Liz Truss is, of course, the minister who's introduced this legislation to disapply unilaterally parts of the protocol, breaking international law in doing so. Uh, this is a, a big concern for the government, their primary Does Rishi concern. Rishi take a different view? Rishi apparently privately has pushed back on some of the more radical elements in terms of the approach to the protocol. Publicly, he makes some of the same noises about the protocol and a lot of that is about appealing to that kind of Brexit wing of the Tory party, uh, the European Research Group, and, and they seem to have the backing or trust seems to have the backing of them now. Okay, now to politics closer to home. The Thaw may be out in its holidays, but the way it left the building has been criticised. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties, among other groups, has called the government out for the rush of legislation that it brought forward in its final few days. Um, Daniel Murray, as I say, is still here with me. Pauline O'Reilly and Breed Smith are also still here. I'm joined by Liam Herrick, Executive Director for the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Uh, Liam, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. An end-of-term cram... You say this is an abuse of parliamentary processes. How so? Well, I think we've kind of got used to it. But just because we've been used to it doesn't make it normal. Um, what we and other civil society groups were concerned about is that in the last number of years it's got worse. That in the last couple of weeks of term, in July and also again in December, the government increasingly rushes through a huge volume of legislation. When we looked at the numbers they're actually pushing through more legislation in those few weeks than they are in the rest of the year put together. Mm. And, and one, one of the features is that in the rush to get through this legislation at the end, the government guillotines or skips crucial stages in the process. So we elect TDs and senators and we pay them to consider, to debate legislation, to make amendments, spot mistakes, to take part in debate. But actually we just skip a few stages mm. during this week. And and, and Do this you believe time, it's contrived? Well, what was worrying this time, I mean, obviously what that means is that we don't have proper democratic process and mistakes are going to happen if you don't give it enough time. But what was worrying this time is that there was another problem as well, was that what the government was doing in these short, late stages in the process, which very often had no debate, was introducing whole new parts to bills. Mm. Not amendments, not sections, whole parts. You know, hundreds of sections sometimes. Um, important, dealing with very, very important questions that are complicated. And that, that is worrying because, first of all, the scope for mistake is bigger, but also the scope for the government to push through something that could be very, very significant, could have very major consequences, and not really giving our elected representatives the time to consider it. Uh, examples in particular that you're especially concerned about, um, Liam? Well, the ones we raised directly with, with uh, the leaders of the party and the business committee of the Oireachtas was the retention of data bill. This is a case that viewers will be familiar with from the Graham Dwyer case. Very important question about whether the guards have a legal basis for carrying out retention of data. The electoral reform bill, a huge bill which is talking about reforming our whole electoral and political system. Uh, the MICA redress bill, um, which was a very sensitive political bill and very important for a large number of people. And also the planning and development bill which would actually change whether people could take part and make objections to plans. So all very, very important, all very long and all complex. Yeah, um, and they're, they're just a couple of the bills, really, that we're talking about here, Pauline. Like, I counted 20 bills in 12 days between the 6th and 18th of July um, being pushed through. It's an incredible number of bills, and it does pose the question, you know, is government trying to, 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 to bury this? Why not have the debate? Why not space out 
that all term in a better way so the job can be done efficiently and transparently. Well, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that because, I, you know, I've said the same thing and I've been vocal on that. Um, and we have seen a reduction in the numbers. And what do others in government say? Because, um, and, I mean, and it's, many, it's and clearly many, it's not just a problem this no, year. I mean, Michael D was calling it out last and, year. And many others do as well, particularly um, backbenchers who are the ones dealing with this. And the Shannon now, uh, in my case, or in the Dáil, um, do have have issues with it as well. And I think particularly around the planning, uh, you know, the Green Party did push back on that. Now, we did get some amendments in, but it sh we shouldn't be left to the last well, minute. Why, why, now, was it, why did it come to this? Well, I, I think in a particular, in a, in a couple of those instances, there was actually cross-party support from opposition and from government um, for some of them because they were seen as emergency. One of those is on, for instance, mm. in my own area, which would be special needs education. There was a recognition, a genuine recognition across all the parties at the Education Committee that we would waive pre-legislative scrutiny because it was needed urgently for September. So there are some instances like that and you can see why these, right. these urgencies, things, so everything has to be dealt with on its, on its merits. But I would say in relation to some other bills like the online safety bill, 30 hours that was in the Shannon. And so, right. you know, it's not a case that everything's being dealt with in that way. There are but it is, but there's form urgency. here. It happens at Christmas and it happens we at summer as well. But we weren't best pleased with the planning one, I'll, I'll say that. Um, Breed, does what can opposition do around this? It, I'll say it's, it's, it's actually not just Leem and I think 20 other, 22 other national organisations calling this out. It's also the European Commission has singled out Ireland's record on this. Well, I want to thank the ICCL for calling this out because... Sometimes the opposition feels like you're screaming at walls. There's a tsunami of bills coming at you. They're not scrutinised. They're not properly debated. The loads of stages are bypassed. There isn't a uh, cross-party agreement on most of this stuff. We have fierce rows at committees and then in the Dáil about this stuff being rushed through. But you feel like you're screaming into a void. So I think it's very good that they've highlighted this for starters. Is there a solution? And well, the solution is that they absolutely shouldn't sit on, on their hands on bills during the year and, and, and pace them so that we're dealing with them in a more efficient way. Do you think way. that's what's happening, that's happening in an uh, organised I mean, manner in order yeah, to avoid well, the there scrutiny? Are, there are certain things that are, are, are being avoided, like I have a retired workers' bill that to give pensioners who, who belonged to pension schemes and their jobs more access to the uh, industrial relations machinery. They sat on that for a year. They uh, delayed it and the year was up in June and they said, well, sorry, manana, we'll deal with it. We haven't had enough time. So they prioritise what they see as important, like the planning, you know, stopping people having access to a judicial review, like the free contraception bill, which stops under-17s having free contraception. No time to scrutinise it right. or discuss it. OK, just something else that there wasn't a huge amount of time to, uh, to, to scrutinise or discuss, and that was the decision to suspend visa-free travel for refugees, Daniel. Um, this came out of... It uh, was released Monday, I think, 6 o'clock Monday evening. Um, on foot of, of cabinet discussions, but out of the blue. Yeah, it certainly was out of the blue. It took a lot of people uh, by surprise. Um, but the government really had got information that it was the level of people coming into the country uh, was unsustainable. Now, this measure actually only applies to quite a small number of those people, mm -hmm. but it's a signal that the government is seeing itself in an emergency circumstance in ter terms of the volume of migrants coming into the country, refugees coming into, in into the country, uh, in particular because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, just on that one, I, I think it was noted that 
that there was only 479 such instances of this where there was there was issues around um, refugees and, and, and visas, that not a huge number um, when you look at the grand scheme of things. Well, the 479 relates to the people that had got international protection in one of the other states and also sought it here. But it's acknowledged by everybody that there are certain circumstances where there's very good reasons why people might do that. Like, for example, people who've initially got protection in a country like Hungary, Italy or Greece, who've tightened up their policies and meant that they couldn't live safely there. So, for example, Germany has given 8,000 people that kind of status. The problem, I think, here, I think, as Daniel said, is, is about, is this a signal or is this a real measure? And I think if we're... Obviously, the government has a real challenge at the moment. Everybody knows the situation in terms of accommodation is very, very difficult. But if we go down the road of sending out signals, that's a very risky and dangerous type of business. Is it risky, Pauline? I, I mean, I think that the... When it comes to Ukraine um, and when it comes to people fleeing from war, a lot, there has been a lot out in the media about there should be a cap. We, do, we don't agree with that, you know, that there should be a cap, number but one. This is, but this in essence, putting a bit of a but, cap in place, But also, um, legally, uh, every state oh, right. in, in Europe has to take in Ukrainians. More have been know, choosing to come to Ireland than have been to other we, countries. We have to go, because we will talk about this again. Um, but that is it from us, I'm afraid, from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.